Welcome back, Kofkin Bond Podcast listeners. We're here for episode 169. I'm here with Tony and Maria Demopoulos. And Tony, we've got a very special guest with us today. An extremely special guest, uh, Marisa Razi. Uh, Marzia Razi, sorry. Um, we, we first, Maria and I, uh, were introduced to Marzia at uh, an SSI opening, actually. I think it was their office openings, where you gave one of the most inspirational speeches that I'd heard and I turned around to Maria right away and said we have to get to know you and as a result of that you know I've got to know you personally and it's it's been a wonderful journey and you've you know very gracious graciously shared your story with us and we believe that the rest of the world needs to hear your story of an amazing woman and what you've done and where you where you know you've your your struggles, which you've just taken on valiantly to actually be where you are today, uh, one year away from having your law degree. Now, I'm going to hand over to Maria. Uh, Maria is one of the most passionate advocates. She's the managing director of Myriad Kofkin Global, and she's one of the most passionate advocates globally uh, for the displaced and for people uh, of actually seeing the humanity of what this world can actually offer. So, Maria, thank you for coming in today as well. Tony, it's an absolute pleasure because, uh, as you said, when we did hear you speak, we both left that uh, meeting thinking we've got to find a way of engaging this young woman. Marzia, thank you. Certainly from my perspective, there's so much that your story can also uh, provide to others who might be in similar situations. As an asylum seeker, and we know that sadly, asylum seekers have been terribly demonised in this country, indeed across the world. I think it's important that we start to look at the humanity behind these stories. Perhaps if we could start by getting you to talk a little bit about how it came to be that you and your family arrived in Australia seeking asylum. Um, so actually my journey of being an asylum seeker started when I was less than one year old where we, um, my family and I had to leave the Afghanistan because of the war. We migrated to Iran and spent a couple of years there. Um, we actually faced um, so much racism and discrimination over there. Um, Why was that? Was that because you were Afghan? Uh, yes, yeah, it, it was because we were Afghan, so even after spending like 15, 16 years over there, we didn't have any citizenship, we didn't have any rights, um, it was very difficult for us to go to school, we were not allowed to go to universities, and um, so much racism in day-to-day -day basis. Um, until you told me the story that you were even blocked from, you weren't allowed to join the volleyball team once they found out that you were Afghan. Yeah, so, and, and was it also because you're Sunni or just because you're Afghan? Yeah, so that's actually one of the saddest memory of my childhood because yeah. um, I used to love playing volleyball and I was really good at it. Um, so we had a team at the school where they wanted to take me for a competition. Um, however, as soon as they realized that I'm Afghan, they told me that I'm not allowed to join the competition. It was because I was Afghan. Mm. Um, yeah, so Afghans were not allowed to participate in any competitions or anything like that. And yet, despite all this, 
you managed to find your way here. Tell us a little bit more about the journey from Iran to Australia. Um, yeah, so um, in 2012, two of my siblings and I decided, um, well, not decided, we had to leave Iran. Um, we migrated to Indonesia in order to come to Australia. We stayed there for three years. Um, we were not allowed to work, we were not allowed to study, but um, it was bad and good because I really enjoyed my time in Indonesia. I got to know um, different people from different backgrounds and um, I think Indonesian people, they were very nice towards refugees. Um, so you would have been about 13 years old then? Um, around 15. Around 15, yeah. 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 Um, yeah, so after staying there for three years, we finally got accepted by Australian government and we had the opportunity to come to Australia in 2015. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so... Um, and can you recall the first day you arrived here? I was just so happy because, um, yeah, um, when we started like being migrants, we never knew like where would our final destination would be and what would happen. Um, we were not even sure if we will get ac accepted by Australian government or no, um, because a lot of people, they get deported back to their countries. Um, I was so happy and um, I felt like um, this was the first and only country where I could truly call home because I knew that I'm gonna be safe, I'm gonna be given so many opportunities, and um, I knew that I'll take these opportunities um, and work the hardest to get to where I want to in life. And here you are now, studying law, last year of law. How has your journey inspired your desire for, for something like the legal system. I was reading something on your LinkedIn page where you talked about the commitment and passion for justice. Is that the reason you chose to do law? Yes. Um, so I remember when I was very young, I used to see a lot of women around me. They used to be mistreated. They used to, for example, get cheated on. They used to get beaten by their families. and. Um, they just couldn't voice their thoughts. They couldn't speak out uh, because um, it would put them in danger. So they didn't have that courage. And I just wanted to do something for um, the community, especially for women, because what I believe is that um, um, women should have the confidence and the power to stand for themselves. I believe we are born free, we will die free, and in between we have to live our lives freely and no one has the right to control our lives or tell us what to do, how to live. Um, so seeing all of those things um, when I was a teenager just made me very passionate to do something for the community, for them to be able to access to proper justice, and I think that's the reason that I started studying law. Mm that experience as a migrant is a challenging one as a young person trying to straddle both cultures if you like I imagine that there's been some challenges there I always recall my mother lamenting that my brother and I had lost contact with our Greek culture when we first arrived and me trying to negotiate my way around the expectations that my family had as a very traditional family with me trying to sort of fit into 
Australian society. Are there any of those experiences that you're coming across where you're trying to balance, really, two cultures in effect? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so for me, I think I did fit in Australian culture really well, but um, I do still have my siblings. For example, my brother, um, who has the mindset of um, like Afghan culture. And um, so we do have like some, um, I do have some challenges with my family, still even though I'm in Australia, not just with my brother or my sister, with the whole Afghan community because there are still some people, even though they have been living here for 20, 30, year, 30 years, um, their beliefs, their mindset is still the same as people, for example, who are living in Afghanistan. So we still have the challenges, but um, I think I do as I want, <laughs> because I believe I came to Australia to live my life the way I want, so the way that I think is right. I was I was going to ask your journey is it wasn't straight to Victoria University to study law. You I believe started school in year eleven. Was it year eleven here in Australia? Yep. Okay. Um, what was your English like when you first started school? Um, so when I started the school, I knew some English because mm -hmm. um, I used to go to English courses when I was in Iran. Um, but of course, I wasn't as fluent. Um, or as confident as I am now. Yeah. Um, I still have some challenges, some difficulties, of course, because um, I'm still learning. Um, but it wasn't too difficult that I couldn't handle. Yeah. Yeah. But you, on top of then studying year 11 and 12, which are two of the most important years of school, of an entire uh, 12 years for somebody here who's at school, I believe you also were working full-time and weren't finishing work to early hours of the morning and then having to go up and get up and go to school again. And why were you working full-time whilst actually being in year 11 and 12 at the same time? Um, yeah, so I started working basically when I, uh, just a month after I arrived in Australia and the reason was because I had to support myself. Um, so I was living with my brother and my sister. We all had to pay the rent equally, pay for everything equally. And um, yes, yeah, so I, I used to go to school from morning to afternoon and then straight from um, school to work until 10 p.m. Um, I'm kind of used to it now. But yeah. on top of that, though, you're also then having to study for exams, having to do assignments. Year 11 and 12 is not just turning up to school. There's a lot of stuff that you have to do after school as well. And if you're working full time, it must have been a real consuming of your time and you're having to juggle. You know, things like, for example, having a social life would be hard if you're working full time and doing year 11 and 12 at the same time. But where I suppose I'm going to with this is that you're working full time, you're at year 11 and 12, and you did well enough to get into law at university. So you didn't just scrape by, you actually obviously studied very hard to be able to get to where you were and then going to university. So it's interesting that you see a lot of uh, our younger generation today who are in year 11 and 12 who think it's so, such a struggle, but not having to work. You know, the, the only struggle they have to worry about at times is who, what friends they're gonna go out with in a weekend and what sport they actually play. But to actually have to work and have to worry about paying the rent at the same time, 
mean, it's not so much a question, it's just me saying that is unbelievable spirit and a wonderful spirit to be able to do that. Yeah, thank you. Um, it was, um, of course, very difficult. So I used to study after work for a couple of hours and um, I actually didn't have social life for the first couple of years um, that I came to Australia. Um, but I think it wasn't a choice. I had to work full time because um, um, apart from um, paying for my own stuff, we also had to support my mom and my sister who are still in Iran. They can't work. Um, so yeah, that was another reason that um, we all had to work. I think people don't realise, do they, that once you arrive in Australia, you've still got your family to worry about. And that is the issue for so many refugees who are here. They're still struggling to try and bring family here. They're worried about their family over there. Afghanistan, as we know, is hardly post-conflict. There are so many issues going on right now. That must be a very hard place for you to sit with. What sort of support would you like from the wider community around a better understanding of those issues? Um, yeah, it is very challenging and very difficult to have part of your family back in the country that you used to live. Um, it's not only about financial, it's also about emotional. For example, my mom used to go through a lot of um, mental um, health pressures because she has no one back in Iran. We don't have any relatives or anyone. And with the current situation, which is very concerning, um, we are actually very worried about them because, um, as I said, we have no one else. If something happens to them, we don't have any contact with anyone else to ask about them or to ask, like, how are they going? Um, um, sorry, what it's was that? It's a hard thing to do. I can't imagine not knowing how my mum and dad might be right now. So what a, I mean, that's quite an emotional thing to be talking about, isn't it? What would you like to see happen? You're obviously trying to sponsor your family or your mum to come out to Australia? Yes, so we have been actually um, trying to bring them here in Australia. It's been seven years and unfortunately, um, they got rejected twice. And um, I believe the reasons that the government has given us is not fair because um, they just said there's too many humanitarian applications. I don't think that's fair if someone is really in danger. And um, it puts a lot of mental health pressure in on my mom, but at the same time uh, to us because um, I want to have my mom here, you know, I want to have my entire family here. I don't want to be like studying at school or work and being worried about what's going on in Iran or what's going on with my family. Um, not only me, it had a lot of um, mental pressure on my siblings as well, especially my older sister who was going through um, a very, very difficult time for two or three years, basically because she was just worried about what's going on with my family in Iran and all of that. So there's no support for your mother or your sister whatsoever in Iran. There's no one for them to turn to. And obviously now with what is going on, it's been brought to the forefront that it is not a safe place. 
not just for Iranian women, but also the fact that uh, your mum and your sister are refugees to Iran at the same time. So they, it's hard for them to earn a living and to work and to survive and to live. When the government turn around, and maybe this is a question for Maria, having worked with government, when the government turn around and say there's too many applications, shouldn't there be a priority when you have such model Australian citizens in respect to Marzia and her sister and her brother and what they've done? And I know she's one year away from finishing her law degree and still working full-time while studying full-time as well because of everything she's just explained. Isn't there, uh, you know, where, where does the humanity actually come into this, Maria? And Tony, I think this is a broader issue than a government decision, and I'm sure Marzia will have something to say about this. And it's a global problem. I think, sadly, historically, we've tended to see refugees in quite a negative light. I think the media hasn't helped, the lack of information. I think it's time that we really worked our way through the terrible mythologies that surround asylum seekers and refugees to really appreciating and understanding the humanity that lies beneath and behind all of the various kind of sensationalism and, and stereotyping that we've seen all too often. I think the reality is that global movements, human global movements are now worse than ever before. And so we really as a nation, I think, need to move to a place that's kinder, that starts to see policy in a more humane sense. I think we've been far too punitive in this country in the way that we've responded to refugee applications. I'm hopeful, I'm hopeful that we're perhaps at a point in our time right now where we might see a more compassionate, um, a kinder response to applications for refugee status in this country. It's about justice, ultimately, and human rights. And I was going to ask Marzia, despite all the adversity and the incredible concern you may, you've got for your mum and your sister, Obviously, there's an element of hope here because you generate hope. When you speak, I hear the hope in your voice. What's that hope about? Is it about our government, our country? What's the hope about? Um, I would like to start by saying I believe that a lot of people think that refugees come to Australia or any other country hoping to have an easy life but I strongly disagree with that. Um, I believe no one leaves their country, their family, their everything behind, just come to a country to have an easy life. They wouldn't do that if they don't have to. Um, so we, I myself, we, I come here not hoping that everything will be provided to me. I come here hoping that I would work hard, I would be safe, I have be, I, I would have been given the opportunity to work hard to get to where I want to. I don't want anything to come to me um, easy. And um, for, um, for my family, um, sorry, <laughs> I just forgot your the hope, question. Your hope, the hope that you have yeah, so I'm just hoping um, uh, for a better decisions. For example, I'll just give my mother and my sister examples again. Um, everyone knows that there is war in Afghanistan. There is no safety. 
And in, and in Iran, they are living as a refugees, where there's no support, as Tony said, from the government. Um, even if they want to rent a house, the real estate agent, they ask them um, if they have a man with them because Iran is a man-dominant country. So they can't even have the basic rights, basic things that everyone should have. Um, so I'm just hoping that government hopefully makes better decisions, not just say that we have too many humanitarian applications, because some people are really in danger. And they have no choice. They have no way to go to back to their countries, and they don't have choice to stay to the, in the country that they are at at the moment. Many years ago, I worked for UNHCR, the United Nations Commission on Refugees, and I recall a poster that they did, and uh, you may have seen this poster, but there's graffiti. It's a photo of a graffiti on the wall that says, Refugee, go home. And the young uh, child is writing over it saying, I would if I could. And I think that point about no person leaves their country, their family, their lives on a whim. They leave in that situation, literally, as you know better than, than all of us in this room right now, without, well, with the shirt on your back, so to speak. I mean, I often say in my workshops with people, if you had to leave right now, what would you take with you? The circumstance might be that you, you're at work, you're at home. It's so hard imagining leaving everything behind in the pursuit of freedom. I think we need a deeper appreciation, those of us who don't come from that background, a much deeper appreciation of the pre-arrival trauma that people come with, let alone the challenges of actually settling in a complete new country. This is why people like you are so inspiring just take the time to listen to the stories, I think. We could we could learn so much, don't you think, Tony? Without any doubt. Oh. I mean, I've been unbelievably inspired uh, by Marzia, and one of the things which I still never forget, and I've told this story a hundred times easily, was the last thing you said in your speech at SSI, and it just blew me out of the water. When you asked, you know, you've you're studying law, you're doing all these things, and you were asked, what is it that you want to be? And rather than saying a successful lawyer and that use, your comment, which was so inspiring, was, I'll let you actually say it, actually. You know where I'm going to, so you can actually say it. Um, so I said I have always wanted to become a powerful woman. And what I mean by that, um, I believe a powerful woman is or a strong woman is someone who knows what she wants, um, someone that knows herself and stands for what she believes and what she wants. And um, I just want to be that person. And I think I have been, but um, I still have a lot to learn. And a strong woman is not just someone that um, stands for herself, but also someone that gives hope to others, inspire other women or anyone in the community and has a positive impact in the community. So I really wish that I could be that woman, I'll, I'll be that woman in future. To yeah. not just, uh, sorry, no. to not just um, leave myself the way I want to, but also to be able to inspire other women to stand for themselves and um, live their life just to the fullest and the way they want. 
If I can say on my behalf, in having gotten to know you now, you are already a powerful woman. Thank and you. you will be an inspiration to so many other women who are in the either the same boat as you or uh, actually not and actually have had an okay life but actually understand that you have choice and your story is, in, is inspirational uh, your story for the next uh, 50 years is going to be inspirational and so many people are going to be better for knowing you and for the work that you actually do so I would like to say personally thank you thank, thank you. you for agreeing <laughs> to do nice. this and telling such a personal story Thank you for having me, and it's a great pleasure that I've met both of you, Tony and Maria. <laughs> Thank you. Coffin Bond Podcast is a product from Coffin Bond & Co., which we are an authorised representative of Gown Financial. All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. It is not intended as a substitute for professional finance, legal or tax advice. The hosts of the Kofkin Bond Podcast are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Before making any financial decision, you should read the product disclosure statement, and if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. Do not take financial advice from the podcast. For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the Kofkin Bond website, or you can find resources on the ASIC website and find a registered financial professional near you. In the spirit of reconciliation, Kofkin Bond and Co. and the hosts of the Kofkin Bond podcast acknowledge the traditional custodians of the country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea, and community. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today.